0: Well, friends, I want to invite you guys to take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 11. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one. We've provided some at the center of each aisle. They're up under the chairs down there in the center. Just flag somebody down and have them pass you a copy. And if you don't own one, we would love you to take that one with, it, with you. Uh, we especially want to make sure you have access to the Bible because one of the most fundamental beliefs that we have as Christians is that God has spoken to us in a way that we can understand and learn from in a way that speaks life and hope and that he's spoken in his word through what men who, who were called out by him uh, have put down on paper under his influence so that we could read it and learn from it all these years later. And what we've, what we've come to this morning, the section of God's word that we're going to be looking at this morning is, the, is, is a sort of climax in a story that's been building for a long time. I and mean, really from the beginning of our series in Exodus back uh, early January, we've been building to this moment. What we come to this morning is one of the, I, I'm gonna go ahead and say this. I don't know how to quantify this, but this is, this is my sense. I think one of the two most important events in all of the Bible, that you have the Exodus and you have the death and resurrection of Jesus and that those two events are the two poles that uphold all of the hopes of God's people from the beginning to the end what we come to this morning is something that you have to know about to fully understand who God is and what he's been doing through his people and it's a story that offers us in a way a dramatic and undeniable resolution to things that have been building up to this point it's 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 where what we've been waiting for actually happens but I'll also say and I think you'll see this pretty quickly This resolution, in one sense, it's a resolution of a lot of themes that have been building. In another sense, though, this resolution comes with a lot of tension. What happens in this story is terrible, just as it's wonderful. It's a story of judgment, just as it's a story of mercy. It's a story that focuses on death before it focuses on life. And, I, and through it all, through all these tensions that we're going to try to live with this morning, it is a story that creates a new people and that lays the foundation for all of their history and all of their hope. What I want to introduce you to this morning, if this is new to you, and help you understand a little better if it's familiar to you, is a story of redemption. A story that, where, where redemption takes place through death, from death, for life through death, from death, for life. These are three themes that I want to bring to the surface for you out of the story we're going to look at. It's a story of judgment. Redemption comes through death. It's a story of mercy. Redemption comes from death. And it's a story that calls us to memory, a redemption that shapes all of life. Those are the three steps I want to take as we work our way through this story. Now, what I want to do to begin is read all of chapter 11, that's a short chapter. It's only 10 verses and it's a, it's a prediction of what's about to happen, but it hits a lot of the bases that we're going to tag this morning. So I want to I go ahead and read it in total and then come back over it some together as we try to understand and learn from this story. So what I want to do now is invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as we read from Exodus chapter 11. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he, meaning Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. This is, first of all, friends, a story of judgment. There's no way around the fact that this story, which ends happily for Israel, begins with deep sorrow and pain for Egypt. Uh, what we just read, as we, as we saw, uh, as, as we've seen with earlier plagues, God Forecasts what he's going to do. He lays it out step by step. That part is similar in the way this plague is set up. But there are huge, dramatic and undeniable differences between some of the plagues we've already seen and the way this plague will go. This plague is drastic and severe on a level we haven't seen yet. Even the hail which destroyed everything in the land wasn't like this. This plague is deadly in a new way. This plague is a direct action from the Lord. He doesn't work through Moses. He doesn't work through Aaron. He doesn't work through natural forces like disease or bugs or hail. There's no intermediary of any kind. It's just him. And this plague, unlike the others, this one is the final blow. This is the one that leaves Pharaoh and his people down and out for good. One way we talked about the plagues last week that I thought was really helpful why are there so many of them well one reason is that you know, the same reason that a multi-game championship ser- series helps confirm who the best team really is because you got to win a bunch of games not just one so, so with, with nine plagues last week and a, a tenth one this week it makes it clearer who really is the Lord as if there were any doubt another way to think of the plagues and the, the fact that they were so drawn out is a, as a kind of prize fight between God and an imposter God has been softening him up. He's been working the body, little by little, always on purpose, holding back the final blow, waiting for the right time, almost propping him up, as you'll see a boxer do sometimes, only waiting for the time when he wants to knock him down and out on his terms. And that's what this plague will do. This plague is the resolution we've been waiting for, but friends, it is a terrible judgment. what I want to do first is let the story speak for itself. I want to show you what's going on in the context of what's already happened and what's about to happen. We're just going to sort of let its details land on us in the way they're meant to, best we can. And then I want to speak to some of the questions that we're going to ask of this judgment. So first, let's just look at the story. How does it work? What is it doing in the context of the larger story? And then we'll, we'll We'll come at it with some questions that it raises for us. So, so the story and where it fits, I think the main thing to know about this final plague is that it is, it is framed as, it is built for an act of justice that answers the challenge posed by Pharaoh and what he had done against God's people. So it is meant to mirror and respond directly to specific things that we've seen from Pharaoh already in this story. It's laced through. What we just read even, this the setup of this last plague is laced through with, with allusions to what's already happened that are, that's now going to be set right. Let me just give you some examples of that. So, so at the very beginning of our story, Pharaoh gets really concerned. This has been the, a Pharaoh before the current Pharaoh. He gets really concerned because the people of Israel are growing and he can't stop them. And he's afraid that there's gonna be so many of them that he'll have a kind of built-in sleeper cell ready to rise up against Pharaoh in case any other outside enemies attack them, and so he he adopts a, a, a horrendous population control measure. He basically gives all people in Egypt a license to kill all Hebrew baby boys on sight. That's his that's his that's his plan. And now Egypt's sons will be taken. Our story started with Israel in distress. Like at the end of chapter 2, this iconic moment where all they've got left inside of them is to groan. They have no more strength, no more words even to speak. They groan, and the sound of their groan rises up to God who hears them and decides to act to redeem them. When God describes that groan coming to him, the word he uses is is a word for crying out, and the same word is used here. In chapter 11, verse 6. Then, in Israel's distress, Israel had cried out. And now we're told, using the same word, that a cry will go up from Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Verse 6. It's a direct echo. In chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, when God was speaking to Moses about what he would say to Pharaoh before he arrived, he's given him his script for that first encounter. God says to Moses, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, speaking to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me, and then a warning. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. The exchange set up by God there before a word had ever even been spoken to Pharaoh is direct, straightforward, and intentional, and now we see it happen. And friends, all along the way in this story, we've seen that, that the things that have happened, the way this story is playing out is meant to show us a contest between God's, little g, the gods that Israel trusted, especially Pharaoh himself who was viewed that way, and God, big g, the Lord, the I am over, over who really is in charge, the contest of, of power. Who do these people really belong to? And ultimately, the question is, who has the power over life and death? Pharaoh claimed that power was his. The lives of the Hebrews were his to dispose of, to use as he would. And here in this plague, God is showing once and for all that that with him and him alone, is there a prerogative over life and death? Surely this is what the Lord means when he says in a verse we haven't read yet, verse 12 of chapter 12, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Chapter 11 announces what's going to happen. Chapter 12, verses 29 to 32, lay it out for us. I'm going to skip ahead there and read for you. At midnight... Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the rest of the chapter tells this story. The Egyptians are just as urgent as Pharaoh is. They say to themselves, verse 33, We shall all be dead. So the people took what was theirs... They took what was the Egyptians, and they left. All the people of Israel, verse 37, journeyed from Ramses to suck off about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and couldn't wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. That's the story we've come full circle what was done to Israel has now been done to their oppressors and we see clearly once and for all who really is the Lord that much is clear but obviously it raises questions for us too doesn't it why the death of the firstborn why not take this judgment out on Pharaoh he seems to be the one who was driving it all why not just punish him and assuming there were children involved as well as adults in those who were killed, what about the innocence of some of those who died? I mean, we, we know that we're meant to root for Israel here, and we do want to see Israel set free, but can we root for this? What does it mean that God is the one who brings this terrible judgment? I want to just offer a few observations to that question. What does it mean that God is the one who's done this? How are we supposed to grapple with it before I end with a question that I don't expect to, to ever have answered in my life? An opportunity to stand in awe before a God who is not us. Let me offer some, some, some observations that I think do help a little bit and then, and then talk about how we can sit under and, and worship a God who is above, whose ways aren't understandable by us. Here's a first couple of observations. I, I want to remind you of a point from last week. I'm not going to belabor it because I belabored it last week, um, and it's online, so you guys could listen to it if you want to. Uh, but but one, one of the things that I tried to highlight last week that I got from a, a writer about this story, one of the uh, Old Testament scholars that I was reading to try to get some insight. I thought it was a really helpful framing. Friends, there, there is no liberation for the oppressed that doesn't involve judgment for the oppressor. Like the joy, the happiness, the freedom for an oppressed person or people comes at the expense of those who were oppressing them. You can't have the redemption that we crave without a judgment a reckoning that we often shrink back from. And last week, what I tried to do is was, was work that a little bit and i don't want to redo that work here i just want to refer you to that to that sermon and encourage you to listen to it and think about it and then i'd be happy to talk more about it that point helps me some there's no redemption for the oppressed without the judgment of the oppressor but it still leaves questions what about these children they were oppressors too assuming some children died at to a second observation it's not just that that judgment for the or rather that redemption for the oppressed means judgment for the oppressor there's there's the oppressor there's there's also a second angle a second aspect to this that I think we're meant to take from this from this story and that is that friend's sin is sin is serious and has terrible consequences that are not limited to the person who's guilty of the sin it's something we're seeing in this story and it's all through the bible and we are all living with that that's in our lives Sin has consequences that spread over into the lives of others besides the one guilty of the sin. I think this is a stark example of something we know from our own experiences. Innocent people do get caught up in the consequences of other of choices. That helps me a little bit. But of course, this still feels different because this is so clearly an active and intentional decision on God's part to take these lives the lives of the firstborn. So the questions are still there. It seems like a violation of the idea of justice that I take for granted and that I've learned from the Bible. And and to that question, is it just for God to do what God's doing here? Here's here's something I think it's important to know. This doesn't resolve it all. It doesn't take away some of the 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 pain and even fear that can come up when you're when you're looking at a story like this one, but I think it is important and helpful to know that there are things that would be wrong for me and you to do that are right for God to do. Let me just give you a couple of of really uh, light-hearted examples of this in our own own lives now. Uh, Not so much for the, the differences between what's right for God and what's right for us, but what's right for an authorized authority versus what would be right for us. So, you know, the, the, the IRS this time of year is authorized to take your money. They are in a position where that is not only legal, but necessary. And they, they, they do it. They relish the opportunity to do it. Uh, if, if you were to take my money, though, not the IRS, that would not be right. I, you are not authorized to take it. That's what we call stealing. And it's unjust. Uh, if, if I commit a crime that requires me to serve a prison sentence, the government behind the power of the prison system is authorized to lock me up, to prevent me from being free. If I were to lock you up in my home on my own authority, that would be what we call kidnapping. The difference is who is authorized, what are they authorized to do, what perspective do they have, what qualifications do they have for seeing what is right. And I don't for a second think that resolves everything that we wrestle with when we come to texts like this one this morning, but I do think it's a piece. God sees things. We don't. God knows things. We don't. God is authorized to execute justice in ways that are beyond what we could. I think all of these are important considerations, uh, and, and I still think that none of them remove our questions or our shock at the sort of punishment we see playing out here if we seriously consider it. So I just want to be honest about that. I I don't think it's resolved. And in the end, friends, this is what I want to encourage you. You should not accept what I'm about to say on my authority. You should do business with the God who made you and the word that he's spoken to you and not with me. But I think what this story, if anything, what it's confronting us with is a god who doesn't defend himself to us who isn't obligated to It's interesting to me that this story is just told the text doesn't explain where this is coming from much less defend what God does to Egypt and and it, it, and in that sense it is following right along with a major theme we've been considering in this series God is God that's what he's telling us about himself in Egypt and we are not I mean, one of the the main points we should take away from his judgment of Pharaoh is that Pharaoh tried to limit who he is. Pharaoh tried to define him on his terms. Pharaoh said to him, who is the Lord that I should let these people go? I don't know him. Pharaoh said implicitly, I am the Lord. I decide what to do with these lives that are mine to dispose of. And God's judgment here is exposing The fraudulence of that claim from Pharaoh. You don't get to decide who God is. He is God. And there's a warning for us in this. A warning to us against defining the Lord on our terms as Pharaoh tried to do. I've been living with that warning and trying to check my own heart and repent of my desire to defend God. I've been feeling that a lot this week. Like, okay, how do I defend what he's done here and make it all make sense so that we like it? And I think that there's some good motive in that. Uh, I mean, his reputation matters to me. I love him. I think he's wonderful and glorious. I want other people to think that. And this doesn't immediately resonate with us in that way. I'm also concerned about people that are important to me that I know will struggle with this picture of God. And for a whole host of reasons, some sinful and some not, hopefully some genuine, I feel the desire to defend him rising up in me this week. And friends, I think we have to shut that down. He doesn't need our defense. He will have to establish his own reputation. I think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 11.
1: Oh, the depth
0: of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a God that we stand in awe of. The God that we are to see and to hear and to worship. And I think the takeaway for us is at the very least got to be two things. One, to be personally convicted by the seriousness of sin and the terrible prospect of facing what we deserve. And two, a prayer to God that he will give us hearts to take sin as seriously as he does and to see what he sees. This is a story of terrible judgment. Redemption comes through death. But this is also a story of mercy. In this story, God offers redemption from death. Death. Israel's redemption, we've already said, meant death for Egypt. That's the first point. But there is another layer we can't afford to miss. I think the most stunning thing about this story is actually not the judgment, as terrible as it is. I mean, we've been building towards that judgment for the whole story. We were expecting that. The stunning thing about this, what we haven't been prepared for in how this story has played out so far, is the fact that Israel is at risk in this judgment not just Egypt Israel too is subject to this curse of death and Israel's only hope for escaping what Egypt suffered is a way of escape that God's mercy provides up to this point in the story with these plagues especially with the last few plagues that we looked at last week one of the main themes has been the difference between Egypt and Israel God said I'm going to send hail on you but not in the land of Goshen where my people live I'm going to send flies on you, but not in the land of Goshen, where my people live. I'm going to send darkness on you. You won't even be able to see your own hand in front of your face, but there will be light in the land of Goshen, where my people live. And we think that's about to happen here because in chapter 11, when, it, when God is setting it up, he says again, I make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. And so we're thinking, nodding along as we read that, oh, of course he does. So, so this plague, this terrible judgment, the death of the firstborn is gonna happen, but not in Goshen where my people live. And that actually isn't what he says. There is still to be a distinction, but only Only if Israel claims by faith the protection that God offers. Israel needs a way of escape. Look at verses 1 to 6 of chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for every household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it. Until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Jump ahead with me to verse 21. Moses passes on these instructions. Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. What's that about? Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin. this right as a statute for you and your sons forever and you notice friends that this is a judgment that comes straight to Israel's houses too this judgment will approach their very door if they aren't inside of the house they will suffer it and what matters when that judgment approaches their door Is whether they're covered with blood. Inside the house. Shielded by this blood. What brings death to the Egyptians. Will pass over you. One of my favorite writers about Exodus. Has been a guy named Alec Motier. He's not living anymore. A wonderful faithful Bible scholar. For a long time over in England. I was reading him this week on this passage, and one of the things that he noticed that I wanted to make sure to pass on to you guys is how verse thirty one um, how how what we see is is that there's not any house anywhere where folks where, where someone has not died. did you see that it 's actually Verse thirty, I said verse thirty-one. Is in verse thirty. Pharaoh rose up in the night. He and all his servants and all the Egyptians. There was a great cry in Egypt. And look at that phrase: there was not a house anywhere in Egypt where someone was not dead. Motir says we aren't just supposed to see in that the houses of the Egyptians who had lost firstborn sons. We're supposed to see in that all houses throughout all of the land of Egypt, in all of them, someone died, including the, land, uh, the houses of the Hebrews. This was true for their homes as well. Only in their homes, instead of a firstborn dying, a lamb dies. What Motir says is that up to this point, the greatest threat to Israel has been this evil dictator running their lives. Pharaoh has been their greatest threat up until now. But at this point in the story, their greatest threat shifts. It is no longer Pharaoh, this genocidal maniac. It is the holy God who is also their only hope. Monterey says this is crucial for how the story unfolds. Why? What is going on here? Why is Israel subject to this same judgment? Well, Exodus doesn't really explain it. Not yet, Anyway. So far, the story of Exodus just says that Israel needed this mercy from God. In other words, Israel needed a substitute to escape the judgment of Egypt. Someone had to be judged. Israel needed a lamb, or they would share the fate of Egypt. But soon enough, what we're going to see in this story is that Israel is far more than just more than merely a victim. They are a victim. There are things that have been done to them that should not have been, and God is setting that right here. But when they leave Egypt, what they carry with them is a sinful heart in every one of them that does not trust the God who delivered them, that wants what they want on their terms, just like Pharaoh had. They will carry with them inside of themselves the starting point for the very sins that Pharaoh had exercised against them. They bear guilt of their own, in other words. And the rest of the Exodus story is just giving us example after example of how that shows up. And that theme, friends, is moving, moves out of Exodus all the way to the New Testament. For those, for anyone to have hope, someone will have to die. There are few passages from the Old Testament that echo so clearly and strongly in Jesus' life and ministry as this one does. What the New Testament teaches us is that the wages of sin, which is inside each and every one of our hearts, is death. Where sin is, death is. And that's a major point in this story. Israel was sinful too, just like Egypt, just like me, just like you. And the Bible is really clear that death is is God's chosen response to our sin. That, that, That in our sin, what we're doing is making a move very similar to the one that Pharaoh made when he claimed the right to rule over Israel. He's saying, you're not the Lord, I am. And all this stuff that's around me, it's mine to dispose of at my will. Whatever I'm powerful enough to do, I'm authorized to do. And friends, in in our sin, all of us put ourselves in that position. All of us stand toe-to-toe with God and say, I am the Lord, you are not. Even when we don't recognize it, that's what we're doing. We treat our, every time we sin, we treat our lives as our own. And death is something unlike any other event that exposes the pretense in our pride that shows us in a way that none of us can deny no matter how hard we try that our lives aren't really, aren't ultimately our own. In the unexpected twist in this story, a twist that's as heavy with symbols as it is light on explanation, we, what we're seeing here, friends, is a picture of what we call the gospel, of what we as Christians claim as our only hope in life and in death. The way of escape God offers us from the death we deserve is the blood of a spotless, unblemished, perfect sacrifice. A lamb like no other that we know as God's own firstborn son. All of the gospels that tell the story of Jesus' life and ministry make this connection. They have Jesus eating the final supper with his disciples at the time that Passover is celebrated one of, the, one of the writers who makes the clearest connection for us is, is the writer of the Gospel of John. At the very beginning of John's Gospel, John the Baptist approaches Jesus. His job is to make way, this pathway for the Lord. And what he says when he sees Jesus coming is, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where did he get that idea? In this passage, Exodus 12. And at the end of John's story, in John chapter 19, when Jesus, with a face like flint, sets himself towards the cross and marches without any fear to his own death, he is crucified, we're told by John, on the day of preparation. Crucified at the time that Passover lambs were being sacrificed to commemorate the God who showed mercy when judgment made sense. Our text this morning doesn't explain that much but it is pointing us in God's wise providence it is pointing us to the crucial moment in the history of the world the only moment that rises to this moment in significance and goes beyond it. We have been bought. We have been redeemed with a price. And now we can be sheltered by his blood. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 5-7 says that our hope is in Christ, our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. That's why Peter in 1 Peter that we looked at back in the fall talks about Jesus ransoming us with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. They're just reading Exodus and applying it to Jesus. And we should too. Israel received mercy. Israel was spared from the death they deserved by the blood of a lamb. And friends, you can be too. That means you. I don't care what you brought in here with you this morning. I don't care how many bridges you've already burned. How many relationships will never, ever take you back again. There is one who will receive you and even redefine you so that you are not what you were. You can be washed clean by the spotless lamb who gave his life to offer you that. And that can happen for you this morning. The last thing I want to say before we end, this is more just to put something on your radar that I think is really cool for you to chew on, not something to fully unpack. I just want you to notice this. The story is mostly about judgment and mercy. That's why we spend all of our time there. But I don't want to end without showing you how important memory is to the way this story gets told. Did you notice? We didn't read this part fully. We just touched on it a little bit. In the middle of the announcement, and the preparation for the event. of the, so, so right in, the, in between where God says what he's going to do and where God does what he's going to do, he spends time laying out instructions for how to remember this day forever. He doesn't wait till after they go. Right in the middle of it, on this day of days, he presses pause on the events and explains, all right, now here's what you'll do on this day every year. You'll make this sacrifice. You'll eat it in this way. Here's what you'll say to your kids when they ask you what's going on. He scripts the whole thing. Why? He gives them a new calendar, beginning of chapter 12. This is, the, this is the beginning of months for you. This. Here's what he's doing. He's helping them see through their calendar and through their feasts and through the script that they say to their children that they are not who they were anymore. That on this day right here, your life begins. Everything that comes next from here to eternity flows from this moment. If if, if he just wanted to free them, he could have done that all at once. But he wanted to show them who he is, so he's taking his time. And if all he wanted to do was free them and then show them who who, who he is, and then send them on their way into a life that was theirs to do with what they will, then he could have ended it right here. Just free them and turn them loose. But his goal, the goal of his redemption is always a very specific and refined purpose. He redeems for life. For life with him. He wants him to remember year after year because he wants them to know that this is a defining moment. That this is now who they are. That in this, they know whose they are. And he wants to leverage all their senses to help them connect this moment to everything they're going to face moving forward. He wants them to remember why that they have a history with him and why and, and, and you're gonna see you're gonna see in the next few stories why they need this so badly. Before we move forward with that story, I want you to know that we need what Israel needed. We need to hear the echoes of this moment, this feast, this call to memory in the defining event of our history as Christians and in the feast that we celebrate when we gather as Christians. We too are called to live with a new calendar now. Christians from the very earliest days of our history have been gathering like we do today on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. Before them, the Hebrews, the Israelites, they had gathered on the the final day of the week. It commemorated the rest of God in his work of creation. We gather on the first day of the week because for us, we believe that Jesus is risen now that though he really died, he really lives again. And that in his rising on the first day of the week, a whole new history is begun. Our history, our calendar, may be influenced by annual celebrations. That's fine to do. But we are fundamentally a people gathered around a weekly event, a new calendar. And when we gather regularly, we share a feast of our own, a feast modeled exactly on the Passover that served the same purpose as our celebration of the Lord's Supper serves now. It's meant to reinforce our identity, to remind us who we are, to remind us that we are a people loved by a God who is powerful, by a God who makes promises freely and full of grace, by a God who loves us and is for us despite our sin and our fickle hearts and despite the fact that we have nothing to offer him in return on our best days. What we do when we gather is we leverage our weeks and even our bodies, our taste buds, everything about who we are in forming new instincts, new intuitions, a new perspective on the world so that we start to see ourselves and everything that happens to us, not as free agents adrift, but as beloved children redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. These these things define us And what we're going to see in these coming stories is why we need to remember this so badly. Before we do that, I just want to pray that God will drive in what we've talked about this morning. That he will help us to see ourselves in his love so that we can live with the freedom that should be ours. Let's pray. Father, thank you for redemption, free and full. Thank you for the cost that you were willing to pay so that we might live. And I pray that you would help us to see... Everything we experience, even the things that we wish were not brought to our lives in light of who you are to us in Christ. To remember that we have history with you. That we aren't starting fresh. That we have a God who has proven himself. And that that gives us the freedom to trust him. Help us to live in the freedom, the life for which you have redeemed us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.